Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello again. Welcome back. Nice to see you all. Um, hope you're all doing well. Um, how are you doing, Hannah? Yeah, all the same. It's a great British summer here in Scotland, pouring rain. Nothing changes. We, we still can't meet. We are still in lockdown. Hannah's still on the other side of her screen as we do remote recording. Hopefully we're getting the hang hang of it a little bit more and, uh, you know, our episodes are closer to what they would normally be. Hope you are all safe wherever you are. Uh, Hope you're all negotiating lockdown, whatever stage of lockdown you might be in, uh, as, as best as you can. What are we talking about today, Hannah? Oh, today. Well, this is a topic that we talk about all the time between ourselves, and I think have have had conversations about this on and off over the years. Uh, it's one of my personal favorites. Uh, we're finally doing an episode on conspiracy theories. Ooh. Is, <laughs> there, is, uh, there a, is there a conspiracy about why it took us this long to do it and what it really means? Why it took us this long? Well... It has it has something to do with the establishment, and I think we I think we were worried that once we talked about conspiracy theories, uh, we would get in trouble with the establishment, and they would come and take away our recording equipment. Yes. Um, so there's a over the last couple of weeks, slightly less, there've been a uh, some stories on Twitter that have. Um, encouraged us to do this episode now it's one we've been thinking about for some time uh the the way in which conspiracy theories work and specifically to do with the alt-right and alt-right on both sides of the atlantic and uh the way the alt-right functions sort of structurally through conspiracies and how that feeds into its sense of where it is uh, vis-a-vis the sort of establishment on both sides, both sides of the Atlantic. So the stories uh, in, involve uh, someone called Ash Sarka, who we both like. Um, and we've, we've, I think we've talked about her before. We, we possibly have talked about the, her before on the podcast. On the um, uh, cards on the table. I used to teach her at one point, quite a long time ago, when I was working for a different institution, and she was still a student. Uh, she was brilliant then. Carries on being brilliant. She's. Uh, a journalist, a political commentator. Um, she appears on Novara Media uh, and on a lot of mainstream uh, media media institutions, including the BBC and 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 Sky News and so on. Um, she tweeted. Uh, she she you know is very active on Twitter. She tweeted. Uh, this was, you know, twentieth, twenty first June. Soon, the the uh, the controversy happened after uh, the recent stabbing incident in uh, in Reading, where three people uh, were killed as a result of a terror attack in in Reading in in, in the UK. And 
um, Ashtaka took a photo of herself on a sunny day, sitting in a park in London, um, eating an ice lolly, an orange ice lolly. And her for the Americans, that's a popsicle. That's a popsicle. Um, she was sat sat next to her bike. Her bike had uh, an orange uh, seat and orange wheels, and the the popsicle ice lolly was also orange. So the caption to this photo were was three orange emojis. I don't imagine. I don't know what she was expecting. As a result of this tweet, I don't think she was expecting anything at all. But this tweet uh, blew up into a major story because uh, large sections of the alt right seized on the three orange emojis as a secret coded message celebrating the three people who were killed in Reading. Uh, Ash Sarkar has since demonstrated that the photo was taken before uh the 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 sad story of of what happened in in reading but uh of course reason logic is not a big part of the response um the conspiracy theory has to do with oranges being a symbol of death from the godfather um and there was you know tweet after tweet after tweet um uh attacking attacking her pictures of nooses uh and even you know supposedly more um reasonable and i'm definitely using scare quotes here reasonable responses which are like you know i'm sure this is not what you were intending but you need to be careful because this is how your tweet tweets are read and continuing a theme of describing her as race baiting uh because she is critical of the racial hierarchies and racial inequalities in the world she is seen as anti-white she identifies as, as a as a muslim and a communist of course these factor into the way way uh her her she is into the way her tweets and uh positions and stories and arguments generate a particular kind of response and then today uh again ash uh has uh tweeted uh a question she specifies in the tweet actually i'll just read the tweet out just to see just to show you quite how Apparently ridiculous, the response is, though I think our argument is that this is not ridiculous. Uh, Ash's tweet uh, says, Cooking question. If a recipe specifies kosher salt, is that just to make it more inclusive, or does it have qualities different from, example, table or maldon salt? Um, And there's been tweet after tweet after tweet describing this as thinly veiled baiting. Um, the, uh, someone called Kickass Liz tweet, tweets at Ash saying this kind of tweet only fuels anti-Semitism and gives grist to the mill RE conspiracy theories, which is a really interesting performative gesture, right? Where you, you what you are doing is giving grist to the mill RE conspiracy theories, <laughs> but push sort, sort of superimposing it onto Ash as if that's what Ash is doing. And these two stories together made us uh, made us want to talk a little bit more and think a little bit more about conspiracy theories. Ash herself has, uh, has responded after the Oranges story, um, pointing out correctly in our view that uh, one of the things that the, the desire to see 
conspiracies everywhere and in everything one of the things that that does is is justifies the kind of everyday violence that the the tweets are the tweets are generating but i think our argument is that it is also doing something else right anna yes well so so a few weeks before the oranges thing so the the godfather conspiracy obviously it's it's worth noting because this will come up later It, it is important to mention that it is about a movie. Yes. Um, it's important that it is about a move, a particular movie that is very popular amongst a certain demographic of young men. Yes. Um, and an old, old movie at that. There was another set of conspiracies that didn't really take off quite as well, which had to do with the Libyan orange market. Yeah. And the importing of oranges from Libya. Yeah. Um, because the, the alleged perpetrator of the the terrorist attack had connections to Libya. Yes. I'd forgotten so, about the Libyan export story. Yeah, that that was yeah, part of it. So there are, and and I think part of one of the thing one of the things that we'll talk about about how conspiracies get consolidated is that more than one is at work at the same time. Yes, and there's a there is a a bit of trial and play that goes on in developing and cultivating a sort of shared conspiracy. So it is dialectic in the most kind of pure sense that the conversations between people about the conspiracy create the conspiracy. So the Libyan orange argument didn't, didn't take off in the same way that the Godfather argument did. So it, it, it turned into a sort of the Godfather references oranges as a metaphor for death. And so that was the same thing quite a a clean and simple set of of points if you are used to engaging with online media and communicating with other people online in a way that makes creative illogical unreasoned connections seemingly unconnected connections and one of the reasons I found this really interesting was because a couple of weeks before th- before all of this happened, a political geographer based in Hawaii, a guy named Reese Jones, whose work I'm familiar with in other contexts because um, he's a border studies scholar. And so I use a lot of his work to teach borders in Edinburgh. He's been writing a book recently on um, alt-right movements and extremist movements in the United States primarily focusing on white supremacist organizations because that's the kind of, they're the main players in the U S and so he's, his research has kind of taken him into the underworld of online alt-right organizing. And one of the things he he just tweeted a random tweet um, a number of weeks ago, when in the United States, a number of protests erupted over lockdown and shelter in place, laws and regulations. So a lot of people, I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with this. A lot of people are primarily white people in parts of the Midwest and the South, but also in other parts of the country. We're protesting in state capitals and we're protesting in local at local government sites um, for their right not to have to shelter in place, not to have to lock down. So the, it made the news in the sense that people were saying, I want my haircut. I have I should have the freedom to expose myself to coronavirus if I want to. It's my body. Da, 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 da. And the images were profoundly militaristic because 
a lot of alt-right and white supremacist groups were participating in the organizing of a lot of these protests. Obviously, not everyone who is there identifies as a white supremacist or is a member of any of these groups. Not everyone, you know, is a proud boy, for example. However, the alt-right was present at a number of these protests. And there is an aesthetic that the alt-right has cultivated in the United States, which aspires to an anti-government, anti-establishment, militia aesthetic, which is all about carrying weapons because, of course, the Second Amendment is key, the the right to bear arms and own guns, um, and uh, a sort of rural militia-type uh, attire. At these protests, Reese Jones noticed a lot of images of men wearing Hawaiian shirts, Reese Jones has lived in Hawaii for a number of years. It's where he's made his career as an academic. So for him, the Hawaiian shirt is a, is a dad shirt. And they have, have recently been making a comeback in terms of fashion. I see, you know, young semi-fashionable men in Edinburgh wearing Hawaiian shirts um, in the rain. So is it, a, sorry, not to interrupt. Is it worth explaining what a Hawaiian shirt is? I don't know if, it? I don't know if, all of our listeners will necessarily know. Uh, so the Hawaiian shirt, it's like bright colors. It's yeah. button down shirt. It's short sleeved and it's tropical in aesthetic. And it's, it's, it's um, often, it's often or has often been used as, um, or as a code for the uncool white tourist, right? It's the, it's the, yes. it's the uncool dad who goes on holiday to Hawaii and picks up a shirt that, that no local would ever wear. Yes. Yeah tacky and 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 self-aware tacky yes yeah dad shirt but also traditional as well so there's a it's a kind of it's a funny joke t-shirt but it's also not a funny joke t-shirt in other contexts but it hasn't to my knowledge been discussed as a sort of piece of cultural appropriation yeah um so it's 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 not a controversial shirt. Yeah. Yeah. In the sense that, I mean, it might've been controversial in the early two thousands if my dad wore one, cause my yeah. sister would have been like, eh, dad. Yeah. But other than that, it's yeah. kind of, so, but he tweet, Reese Jones tweeted an image and a, a kind of thought, an observation. What's weird is that they all wear Hawaiian shirts. Why are they all wearing Hawaiian shirts? And so he did some digging and because everyone was like, whoa, you're right. This is super weird. Hmm. So he did some digging and discovered that there is an entire history and lineage to the Hawaiian shirt as, as alt-right protest attire. It is bizarre. And one of the reasons I found it really interesting is because the, the fashion magazine in style picked up on this and reported on it because it had, they were talking about the Hawaiian shirt. And if you don't know this, this kind of story, and if you haven't read this piece, it is fascinating. It's a little bit convoluted and complex by nature, which is one of the things that we're trying to argue here. So I'm going to try and go through it piece by piece. Um, But the point of the story here is that (laughs) the way that conspiracy theorists construct knowledge, construct their knowledge of a conspiracy is traceable and it is not rational at first glance 
but it has an internal logic to it. So we start really, as all good conspiracy theories do, we start at 4chan and 8chan and Reddit, uh, online message boards and online chat boards, um, which is where all good conspiracy theories uh, go to develop and grow. And, and there are particular associations between 4chan and 8chan and white supremacy, alt-right movements, right? That, that, that's their natural and, habitat. Yeah. Yeah, and not just not just alt right and white supremacy, other kind of um, connected but different. Uh, what would you call them? Movements, <laughs> movements in scare quotes, like GamerGate. Yeah, um, GamerGate also yeah. Uh, appeared on 4chan. So, a lot of the ways. I think that um, people online communicate and it's not just the alt-right, but it's also, you know, everyone who uses the internet um, often communicate using jokes, um, using memes, using irony, um, using media representations that are kind of easily identifiable and easily shared. The dank meme, um, which uh, I'm sure everyone knows this, but just as a, kind of starting point the dank meme is a meme that has been um used and degraded in quality and file quality um to such a such a degree that it looks ridiculous and weird and old on purpose um so the kind of constant editing of images um that are easily recognizable and then turned into a meme it's a classic tool of conspiracy theorists and white supremacists um and in a sense, the Hawaiian shirt is is it serves a similar function to a kind of alt right meme. Um, so you sort of begin with pop culture. Um, there was a movie made in the nineteen eighties called uh, "Break Into Electric Boogaloo." That's classic, and it was a flop. It's about breakdancing, <laughs> and it it was a t- it was panned by critics, obviously, but of course, any movie that's panned by critics becomes an instant cult classic. Uh, Break into Electric Boogaloo did become a cult classic, and a number of kind of jokes and memes about the film appear on message boards, uh, Reddit, 4chan, 8chan, etc. Just just to interrupt, uh, a, a slightly more familiar version of this might be the red pill from the matrix. Yes. Right? So the so those of you who who know the matrix will know that the 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 red pill option has been appropriated by various alt-right groups as the thing that allows you to see the truth behind the establishment lies. And and that is a as I say a slightly more familiar high-profile version of something similar going on where uh uh a piece of sort of cultural text, a, a film, often a cult film, uh, gets picked up for hidden messages like this. Yes, Go on. exactly. Yeah, um, and it's and it's not it's not unreasonable. You know, vi- the video game medium, especially, but Disney as well, have Easter eggs. You know, yeah. and the Easter egg is the kind of seemingly random reference 
that from a different piece of cultural representation that fans of the maker or the yeah. production studio or the genre will recognize. And, so, and it, it immediately creates a community, right? Because if you are in the yes. know, you get it. And if you're not in the know, then you don't get it. Yes, uh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And a lot of this has to do with the way that online message boards work, um, especially quite democratic ones like Reddit or 4chan, where you can set up a, a forum or a message board, a chat board about whatever you want, and other people can come find you. And it creates a really organic online community. The flip side, of course, is that it can create a really organic online community of people who really, really hate Black people, right? So you can get a bunch of racists together who share their ideas and start to normalize it amongst themselves, start to think, oh, there's lots of people that share my ideas, start to create a bubble, Oh, all these people actually are actually see the world the way I do. We're we're the right ones, and the rest of the world is just crazy. So, break into electric boogaloo is there's you know jokes and memes that circulate on message boards about this movie, but they're also being seen and consumed and made by the radical far right, which also gathers on these forums. So the alt-right, and Reese Jones has argued elsewhere, that white supremacist groups use these forums as a way of recruiting. Um, One of the things that they often do is they will start with the sort of gateway drug of men's rights activism, um, a kind of the the conspiracy that that women are overprivileged in society and that men are downtrodden and men are oppressed, Um, sort of begin with like low-key misogyny, move on to really hardcore misogyny, and then from there move on to white supremacy. Um, So Reese Jones kind of has made this sort of argument that this is one of the strategies that alt-right groups use um, to recruit online. It it seems logical to me. It makes sense. There's lots of kind of very problematic themed boards um, where electric boogaloo appears. Um, you know, a lot of people know about Pepe the Frog. Pepe is another um, casualty of, of meme culture here. Um, and one of the weird overlaps or crossovers that happened was a, a pro-gun rights discussion, um, set of discussions, and electric boogaloo memes. And a lot of the... There's a lot of crossover here with um, quite hardcore Second Amendment fans, groupies, um, proponents um, that take the Second Amendment position to the extreme. Um, And online, there's some susceptibility to the conspiracy that um, gun control activists and gun control advocates are coming to take away all the guns, right? This was a a kind of story about uh, liberal governors in the U.S., about Barack Obama. The government was coming to take away all your guns. And this was not only a violation of your Second Amendment right, it was a violation of your human right as a neoliberal individual who has the right and the duty and the obligation to protect himself and protect his family and protect his property. So this kind of emotive framing of guns as the as the kind of big issue the big ticket issue um 
really sort of takes off in these forums. Connected to that is a racist position, which is that once your guns get taken away by the government, uh, immigration is going to lead to a, a civil war where white genocide will be enacted, will be done, will be policy. It's, it's unclear exactly, but the, there's, there's a belief that these two things are connected. This is the kind of story. Where so, on so, earth? So the Second Amendment doesn't just give you the right to bear arms. The the act of bearing arms is is needed to protect yourself from the white genocide that is coming. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So it's and and that you know it's a it's a it's a, a transition. It's a it's a sort of. Um, warping of the original kind of language around the revolutionary war, what the Americans call the American war of independence, um, which was that, that non-state militias, because of course the colonies weren't, didn't have a military that wasn't the British military. They were non-state guerrilla militias organizing locally to defend themselves and their, their land you know, native land that they stole. But anyway, um, and that that they needed their guns in order to protect themselves. And that that narrative underpins Movement West as well, the kind of continued colonization of the continent, um, the, the need to have your gun to defend your wagon with all your belongings and your wife and your kids and your homestead or whatever. Um, that you not only have a right, but you have a duty and an obligation as an American citizen to defend your stuff from the establishment. It's a really, really fascinating way of thinking, and it's a it's very colonial settler. It's it's a particular form of colonialism. Um, but this all turns into Hawaiian shirts at rallies. <laughs> Because of the way that online communication happens. So Break Into Electric Boogaloo uh, gets memed. And when things get memed, they get played with. And so there's a lot of wordplay. And so Electric Boogaloo gets shortened to the boogaloo on chat boards. And later, because the word boogaloo sounds like igloo, it gets shortened to big igloo. And another derivative is big luau. And so they're just kind of word wordplay in a sense, like Cockney rhyming slang on the same word, electric boogaloo, which is a reference to this obscure 1984 cult classic movie about breakdancing. Is it, is it unkind of me to, to, to suggest that these, this wordplay might also have something to do with the abil- spelling abilities of the people involved? It's so it's, it's, and it's what is also possible is that someone had made a spelling yeah. mistake. Somebody else was making fun of them. Yeah. Because there's a lot of that masculine yeah. joshing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah. It, is, it is very possible that some of these do come about yeah. in that way, that yeah. all, these, all these guys are making fun of yeah. some other guy for yeah. making some stupid mistake. Yeah. yeah. Then they start, to, they start to replace the first half of the movie title, Break in Two with other random phrases. And finally, 
they get somebody suggests somebody comes up with Civil War Two, referring to the next Civil War about the loss of guns and then the white genocide that follows after as a result. Civil War Two Electric Boogaloo, which ties this white supremacist, uh, anti-establishment, pro-gun position to the world of Electric Boogaloo online meme making, meme joking. So that this is where they, in the Venn diagram, this is where they overlap. On Wikipedia, we've done our research, haven't we, citing Wikipedia, we have discovered that the Boogaloo is now shorthand for this of that civil war. That, that that word is used to describe that civil war. So this is where the Hawaiian shirts come in. They become symbols of representing kind of like a uniform uh, representing members of a particular alt-right group called the Boogaloo Movement. It, the, the key here is that there is no actual connection. There's no substantive connection between any of these things. The connections have to do with context, wordplay, jokes, and essentially randomness that online media makes possible. If this is how you think, and if this is how you communicate, and if you have fun making these kinds of connections between disparate things, and you find it fun to make memes and share memes and make stupid jokes online, I share memes all the time. If that's how you communicate, then obviously if someone that you see as representative of the communist, Islamic, jihadist revolution, someone who is going to ride in on all four horses of the apocalypse, wipe away white civilization, and install a communist Islamic Sharia government, which is what Ash, Ash Sarkar represents. Obviously, her three oranges mean something else. Yeah. And I think... So I think there are two points here. The first point that, as you said, it's a it's a way of seeing the world, right? If the, if that is the way you engage with the world, to see signs and symbols in in everything, and it doesn't matter how, in a sense, it's it's not even true to say that it doesn't matter how far fetched they are. The more far fetched they are, the better, because the harder mm-hmm. you have to work to decode. Um, yep. So th- so that's part of it, and the other part of it is. The idea that if you if you believe in white supremacy, if you believe in the right to bear arms, if you believe in men's rights as opposed to women's rights, to white rights as opposed to black rights, and and so on, that this, these positions are somehow anti-establishment. That mm-hmm. there is there is a global network of power, which is sometimes zionist which is sometimes islamic which is sometimes liberal uh which mm-hmm. is sometimes black and communist depending on who you are and where you are that there is a global network of power designed to silence you and yep. you you can't talk about these things openly because you will then be silenced and therefore the only thing you can do is to be is to be conspiratorial so there is a there is a you know, there is a, a whole spectrum of Hawaiian shirts, of uh, orange emoji deaths. And, you know, when Alex Jones goes on about uh, mm-hmm. coronavirus being a Chinese 
war, you know, germ warfare thing. It's 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 all part of the same system or the same way of looking at the world, which is to say, me, I, we, the the right thinking, manly, white, uh, you know, silent majority, as it were, are the ones mm-hmm. who are oppressed, and therefore. If we have, if we are to communicate with each other, we have to communicate using these secrets and codes and signals because that's the only yeah. way we'll be allowed to exist. And it is that paranoia that both justifies the, you know, the the desire for an armed conflict, the desire for a race war, uh, and also justifies the the suggestion that people like Ash Sarkar are really out to start a race war. Yes. And it's, it's the, it's, which is why I find this, this tweet from Kick-Ass Liz so interesting because that tweet is doing exactly that, right? Accusing Ash Sarkar of giving grist to the mill are conspiracy theories because, mm-hmm. you know, so, so when Civil War II electric boogaloo becomes the code for, we have to start, we have to fight a war to avoid white genocide. You are ascribing the desire for genocide onto the black and brown population of the world. Yep. As opposed to what you are doing, which is to start a race war to get rid of the black and brown population of the world. Yep. Right? And it's, it's that, and that's why for, for both of us, I think the standard liberal response of you know, what is this even about and how stupid is this? None of these conspiracies m- make any kind of sense. The, you know, standard argument about, you know, tinfoil or whatever, you know, tinfoil hat because they're crazy is slightly, I mean, it's unsatisfactory, but it's also sort of dangerously complacent because I don't think it really acknowledges the seriousness of these these groups because mm-hmm. they are they're organized, they're well-funded, they're influential and the the you know the the threat that if the government does come for our guns then there will be a second civil war is not an idle threat and, yeah. and if you if you see the the kinds of twitter accounts that have uh attacked and sent death threats to ashsaka over the last couple of weeks there is a direct connection between those twitter accounts and trump supporting the the trump supporting white supremacist base of the United States. This is a, 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 a tra- at, at the very least, a transatlantic, if not a global alt-right movement. Um, yep. And it's it's fascinating to see the ways in which the, uh, the, the alt-right movements are creating a world in their own image, I guess, is one way of thinking about it, I guess. So they're they're yeah. ascribing to the world the the uh the 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 mechanisms through which they operate. Yes. Yes. And it's um I think it's really important actually that that general kind of liberal and progressive um supporters of Ash but also you know, more generally haven't taken the time to really understand how linguistically and symbolically this type of knowledge gets made. 
I think there's there's kind of scholars of politics and scholars of the internet, certainly, and scholars of technology, people who write about memes and people who write about discourses online, who who have made these arguments. But in terms of being able to explain why it is that 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 Ash Sarkar gets caught up in a, a conspiracy like this one, I think that that it's not just complacent. It's a it it feeds on on deeper, more base feelings that people who subscribe to alt right positions, especially the really extreme ones that we're talking about, are stupid. Mm, yeah, or uneducated. Yes. Which of and course, uncreative. which of course feeds into the argument about the liberal elite, right? It's the yes. it's the liberal elite who's looking at the, um, uh, sort of great white underclass, mm-hmm. looking using scare quotes and constructing them as ignorant, uh, uneducated, stupid, unthinking, mm-hmm. uh, adolescent as well. I think there is a there's a kind of age thing mm-hmm. here right these are immature adolescent boys as opposed yep. to you know grown-up men with guns who are out on the streets terrorizing women and non-white people yeah and a lot of a lot of them are in the military so yeah. one of the other things reese jones uncovered is that the boogaloo movement has a lot of people who are active military or retired military that there is a connection yeah, yeah. So how does the fact that they are, that there is a direct connection between active military personnel, and that is true, on again, on both sides of the Atlantic. If you look at the Twitter, Twitter accounts that, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, bully and threaten outspoken women of color, you know, we have, we've mentioned Asaka, there, there's the academic PM Vadagopal, that it's a slightly separate story, but, but a similar story of, sending death threats to to outspoken uh uh critical left wing women women of color um a lot of that a lot of those tweets at least going by going by the twitter account claim to come from active british army personnel mm-hmm. right so i guess one one of the is is it a contradiction is it a paradox i don't know but one of the apparent contradictions is how do these how how do these Positions of anti-establishment, apparent and apparent anti-establishment positions, correlate with the fact that they are part of the most establishment of organizations, such as the army and the police. Right? How can you be on the side of the army and the police, but claim to be anti-establishment? Well, I think it's a question of scale. So we do know, and intellectually, we're very aware of the fact that the military in Britain and the military in the U.S. recruit from um, historically and concurrently depressed economic areas. They recruit from uh, communities of color. They recruit disproportionately from communities of poverty. And part of this is they provide the opportunity for a career without needing a degree and they offer after service they offer the opportunity to retrain um, they offer subsidized educational opportunities 
Um, they, the, the military industrial complex in the U.S. also takes into account the need to have a labor force. And so one of the, the key features of the military is that they're often recruiting in places where a lot of people don't have the option to go into an industrial job or who don't have um, ed- affordable educational opportunities after high school. Um, there were no army recruiters, for example, in my extremely wealthy suburban town. I never saw an army recruiter, but there were a lot of college fairs, right? And it's it's the opposite. So you have the individual members of the military are often people who are oppressed in some way, whether that's by capitalism or whether that's by white supremacy or whether that's by patriarchy even. So the the military offers advancement and career development and and training and and salary for individuals which is different from the institution of the military which is which functions at a different scale and which functions for different reasons and according to different power relations there's a fundamental difference between the the people who run the military and the so-called boots on the ground. No, I, I, I agree completely. I guess I was thinking more if you if you are an alt-right conspiracy theorist who mm. believes that the establishment of the government that is the British government in London or the American government in Washington is is your enemy, as it were. Right, mm-hmm. that that is the establishment that is trying to silence you. What do you think you are doing, specifically, as a member of the armed forces of that country? Right, not not just it is. I mean, part of the story is that you are getting a job because you can't get a job elsewhere because capitalism has ensured there aren't any other jobs in your area. But I don't expect there is that level of self awareness going on here so if that isn't the case then what do you who do you believe you are fighting for as mm. part of the british army or as part of the u.s army mm. yeah 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 yeah. because uh, you know a lot of service people are very proud to have served yeah that's quite a normal and, and you, you sort of you'd have to be right like i being in the army is not an easy job the only way you could really cut it is if you have managed to convince yourself that what you are doing is an absolute good. Yeah. Uh, right? otherwise, yeah. Otherwise, you, otherwise you wouldn't survive. And that's true whether, whether you're fighting for the Indian Army in, in the CHN in the, in the glaciers. It's true whether you, if you're fighting for the US Army in Iraq and Afghanistan. Whichever, army life is not an easy life, especially if you're not an, not an officer, if you're, you know, the, the, the working class of the army, as it were. Yeah. So the the only way to survive would be to convince yourself that what you're doing is an absolute good. Mm. And if your position is suspicion of the government as an institution, then who do you think you are fighting for? Mm. Yes. I mean, if neither of us have served in the military. No. Um, although we both know plenty of people who have, I, I assume you do, I do. Yeah, one or two. Um, I mean, from what I've read of the 
the where there's a crossover because obviously it's not a it's not a massive crossover right the the boogaloo boys are not a huge movement in terms of numbers there aren't that many of them um but there's all the the same can also be said of the police here right that the the police um but a number of academic sociologists especially who study this talk about how how currently the way that the police recruits and the way that the police operates it's quite a um an attractive place for white supremacists um so not every police officer is a white supremacist but um there are an unusually high number of white supremacists in the police um because of structural reason for structural reasons the way that the police operate so it's the same thing yeah um but i do think there's something about the u.s that is is in its very kind of nationalist conception, the story that the United States tells itself. Um, and we have decided that we're going to talk about this in more detail in another episode because it's much bigger and more nuanced than this. But that at its core, the United States can't reconcile the fact that it is both a global power one of the most powerful geopolitical units in the world. And yet it has a nationalist myth, its origin story, and it, the story that it tells itself is that it is the weakest, most vulnerable, at-risk geopolitical unit in the world. And there's a movement between a kind of sliding scale between the United States as a sort of symbolic entity, a kind of nebulous, ambiguous symbolic entity and individual Americans and individual American people who are, who are at once representative of this vulnerable at risk nation, but who also as individuals are inexplicably at risk themselves of being colonized by their own government. Yeah. Because that is the origin story of the United States as white people tell it to themselves. And it is that that conundrum, I think, that allows for alt-right groups to to nationalize this story about white genocide. Which which also explains, I think, the pro-Brexit movement in in Britain. As a, Mm -hmm. you know, Britain can't quite tell itself the story of being colonized by its own government in the same way. Uh, But... Britain can tell the story of being colonized by Brussels with the, you know, the cooperation of the traitorous, treasonous politicians in London who, Mm -hmm. who are not Boris Johnson, who don't believe in, you know, making Britain great again. Um, and, and, and the, and that, that double think that due the, 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 uh, juxtaposition of that sort of split way of looking at the world allows you to be at once on the side of the most powerful men in the world, you know, the, mm-hmm. the American president and the British prime minister, you know, the, these are Trump Boris supporting groups. So it allows you to be on the side of the establishment in that absolute immediate sense, while also feeling the need to cloak your views in elaborate conspiracies because you have to justify to yourself and to everyone else that that same establishment is out to get you and is yes. out to silence you. And therefore, this has to be an underground movement. Yeah. 
because yep. you are anti-establishment. Yes. I think that's probably a good place to end. Yeah. It's uh, a bit mind-bendy. Yes. But it and, uh, but that's what makes it important, right? We we mm-hmm. we uh dismiss these movements at our peril, I think. Yep. Um we're going to uh include links to the to the Reese Jones article and to some of the tweets that we've been talking about in the comments. So uh, go and look at that if you if you like. Um, let us know what you think, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick, and I have been an India Rich Audrey. You can contact me on Twitter at Doctor H Fitz, and me at Doctor An India R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast, and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be? Where would we be?